0: This is Tommy's Outdoors 109. One of the great things about recording this podcast is that I get to talk with some incredible people. And one of those incredible people is our guest today. His name is Moose Mutlaw. And um, Moose uh, works as a senior trainer in Yosemite Search and Rescue, but he accumulated like a lifetime of incredible. Experiences, so just to give you a uh, some idea, he was born and grew up in England and he started teaching outdoor education there. And in general, he has like a 30 years of experience in traditional and alternative forms of education. Then he moved to south of France. Then he spent some time in Australia. Then he spent some time in Africa where uh, he was a teacher in, in Kalahari. He, he, he fished in Nokavango. Uh, He moved to U.S. and in the U.S.A. he was guiding and working for Outward Bound. Uh, And among other other things, he was a fishery officer, social worker, principal at an elite sporting academy. Um, And right now he's uh, directing construction of the 52 million worth of uh, School of Environmental Education. No, sorry, it's School of Environmental Science in Yosemite National Park. And by the time you're listening to this podcast, he will be teaching veterans canoe course on Everglades. Yeah, I mean, it's just incredible. So, as it has, um, Moose has a book. The uh, Mo- book is called uh, When Accidents Happen, Managing Crisis Communication as a Family Liaison Officer. And the book is pretty Technical and and focused on being a family liaison officer, but in turn, you know I read the book and there is a lot of universal wisdom in that book. How to communicate, how to communicate in in emergency situations, how to be respectful. You know things like how to not make promises uh, only because they will make you or people you talk to feel good. Um, there is like a universal wisdom in that book. Um, it's a It's a good read. It's a good quick read and, and I definitely I, I would encourage you to read that book, especially if you're communicating with people or you might need to communicate uh, with with people in in stressful situations. So um, look, we only had uh, just a short of two hours for to record this podcast and with a, with a guy like Moose who has so many experiences, we could probably you know sit for a week uh, talking. So, uh, you know, I, 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 I try to, you know, tease out as many interesting things uh, from Moose in that short uh, period of time. And I really think that you will enjoy it. And as usual, you know, before you enjoy this episode of the Tommy Salvador's podcast, just a reminder, um, share this podcast with your friends. It's a great help for me. And leave the rating, five star rating, leave the review. Uh, especially if you're listening to on Apple Podcasts or, or iTunes, uh, you know, leave the comment, like, share. This is great help for the podcast. And if you want to help me, now you can buy me a coffee. Buymeacoffee.com slash Tommy's Outdoors. The link is in the description of the show down in the bottom. It is greatly appreciated. I really need some coffee when I sit long hours and edit those episodes for you. So, yep, that's it. Uh, and now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, when accidents happen, with Moose Mutlaw, I'd say you'll be in the good hands.
1: Welcome to Tommy's Outdoors. Good to have you. Thank you very much, Tommy. It's, it's nice to be here. We're separated by a little bit of a distance, so thanks for making it work with the time difference.
0: Yeah, but you know, with the modern technology, the distance is not a problem at all. At all, at all. Listen, man, um I I I read, you know, you obviously exchanged the emails before we before we get uh, get to this recording and, and we had the chat and Wow, man, you had an impressive resume and you've been and you've seen stuff and you've been places. Uh, you could probably you know like divide that between three people and you <laughs> and, and that wouldn't be boring uh, life any of those three. So tell me like t- tell me and, and and our listeners like how what set you on this path of uh, adventure and being on, on in so many locations doing so many amazing things?
1: Well, I, I I've been very lucky. I mean, I've been fortunate. Um, I think there was some really good timing that went on with it. Um, I think growing up in Britain, which is a small small island, um, and having a family that was exposed to a lot of international pieces i have sisters that are linguists my father was a business traveler and so you got exposed a lot to the wider world from visitors or getting postcards from australia from my dad um and you just sort of got inspired to start moving so at 18 i pretty much started moving and kept moving for a long time yeah
0: and where, where was your because you've been in australia and in africa and right now you're in the U.S., um, for, for people who don't know.
1: Yeah, I got really lucky. I, I spent time working in and around Europe. I, I was a canoe guide with, with a summer camp program in the south of France, which was fantastic. I had a really good time with that. I managed a beach concession on the Mediterranean for a short time. Whoa. I ended up in southern Africa and in Botswana for a bit. I taught, I taught a school uh, in the Kalahari for a year. I spent time guiding in Australia and then I ended up getting to, I kept coming back to the United States because career wise, there was a lot more options for it to be sustainable and spent a large amount of time working for a group called Outward Bound in North Carolina and their base camps in Florida, the Voyager Outward Bound School. I worked for them down on the Texas border. Uh, and I'm actually going back to work for Outward Bound in about a month. I'm going to go and teach a veterans program down in the Everglades. It'll be my first course since 2005. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Wow. It's, uh, and, and, and so and right now you're, you're in the Yosemite National Park.
1: Right. I've been lucky. So the last uh, 20 years I've worked for a national environmental education program called Nature Bridge. It works in different national parks around the United States and I was an education director and now I'm the senior projects director building a 50 million dollar plus environmental science uh, center in Yosemite National Park and then as part of that we work very closely with the National Park Service and I essentially am able to Leave my job and go and help support search and rescue operations in the park, and they do national park trainings mm-hmm. regionally, like within Yosemite, and also on a national level. Right, right, right. There's
0: so many, so many questions, man. We get to all of them. Um, but before, before, like, in, when you were in 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 Africa, like you were teaching in a school, and you were guiding there as well, Or you were also involved in in like a safety and.
1: Well I mean it, it. <laughs> well any t- well, I, I lived in a really remote area in the southern Kalahari um, for a brand new community junior secondary school that went in. The Botswana government had invested a huge amount of money in broadening educational opportunity for people. And I was recruited through the British Council, I think, at the time to go out and teach. And every day's guiding out there because you're in a remote location. And I ended up not doing commercial stuff. We did a lot of safaris and trips. We went up into Zambia and Zimbabwe and down into the Republic. It was right before the elections that were happening in South Africa. Um, but, yeah, you're just in the wilds. You would have, We would have situations where your kids would, would end up having to go home and they would leave to go to their villages and they would leave en masse because you were worried about potential issues in and around lions. Um, wow. wow. And then we had yeah go ahead.
0: No, no, I was just just want to comment that this is this is uh quite often part of a discussions that that people who live in you know Britain and europe and, and america they they ex- expressing their opinions about lions and uh, elephants and all that, but they don't have to deal with that. They never have to they never in a situation where their kids need to go home in groups because there are issues around lions, right.
1: Well, yeah, but, but I also think that people who grow up in that environment, they live with it. Like if you're, when you're in Alaska, all the precautions you take when you're out for grizzly bears are what people do every single day. What indigenous people to, did to live alongside polar bears in the, in the Arctic, they do each and every day. It's, we adapt. And a lot of times the, our inability to adapt is based on fear. 'Cause we don't understand and we don't want to learn. Or or we're too we're too frightened to learn because it, it means we have to change the way we look at the world. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I mean, I our kids, they weren't worried. They just knew how to be in that environment. They they knew how to look after each other and themselves. Mm-hmm. But I still,
0: re- you have to say like, yeah, go in, go back home in group because it might be not the great idea if you go. <laughs>
1: well, I had I had a great experience where we were in a safari camp and you're kind of getting getting shut in at night and what in this particular safari camp, and the guy who shut us in locked the gate basically and put chain through it, and then he got on his bicycle and he rode to where he lives, <laughs> and so. You got this idea of oh we can't be trusted to look after ourselves. I'm going to look after you. And he 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 understood the environment. It's
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's like a lot of ideas around rewilding. When people get really really excited about bringing larger predators in or, or reestablishing the natural order, it's actually you're just going to adapt the way you look at the world. The way you we, we have chickens. Uh, we have a ranch uh, out in uh the foothills and we have bobcats out there and coyotes that predate chickens and you have to put them away at night when the when the sun goes down you walk out you lock them up that's the way you adapt it's not that big a deal when we bring when when lynx comes back or to the to the uk and up in scotland or wherever they're going to release it people are just going to be more careful with their cats and their pets yeah it's Uh, it's a good sacrifice for this benefit, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah,
0: I I think like there is a like you mentioned, there is a, a huge deal of fear, and quite often that fear is is kind of fueled by media and some some reports that, that they have nothing to do with the actual environment and what's going to happen, and, and it's like it's always getting very political, which is which is unfortunate.
1: Well, the news is on the extreme end. It sort of says. It doesn't say mildly you'll be mildly inconvenienced by the release of Beaver. It's like it's gonna be a terrible thing or it's gonna be great. It's not like actually we'll just kind of adapt and it's gonna be fine. It's yeah we for it to be news, it has to provoke a reaction. I mean we should almost we almost almost get to a society where there's so much equality and it's so even that there is no reaction because we're all like, oh, we can accept that. That's okay. Um and I, th- I think that there's there's a lot of lessons in the natural world about why trying to make things simple isn't beneficial. It's actually the natural world is incredibly complex, and it and it sort of self equalizes when it's given the chance. And you have to understand all those nuances. It takes effort and attention. You can't fix it in thirty minutes.
0: Yeah, yeah. They, but you but you're right. This is an especially. News and social media is never like a balanced approach like like you said, there's always extremes like yeah release wolves they're gonna sort out deer problem and and beaver will come back you know make the whole di- biodiversity to come back and then there's a go like no no they're gonna flood everything and will eat your all your sheep and all your cows and then there's like no it's it's neither of those <laughs> somewhere yeah.
1: yeah it's a nutty thing like the, i think the united states there's uh the wolf is a is a very um it can be a very explosive issue talking about wolves. Um, well, tell me about it. But like when, when this, you know, originally before the impacts of, of large amounts of people coming in, people talked about these enormous herds of animal, buffalo and elk, what have you. And they were regulated by predators. They like the, the natural balance is to have these megafauna out there. And It's good to be humbled in the landscape by something more powerful than you. It's like we've talked before about buffalo and like European bison. You don't mess around with bison. They're like they're an angry cow that needs to be left alone. And that's good in an environment to be like, I can't just walk anywhere. I have to have that awareness. And that's respect. And then when you learn respect, you can pass that on to your relationship with other people. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, that's, 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 that's a very good point. That's actually a very good point. Um, Listen, did, how did you get on the path of being like a, so, you know, connecting your job with the environment, right? Is is it, was it like you were always kind of like an outdoor kid and there was like no other option or whether, well, you know, you, you, you secretly were dreaming about being, you know, and, and, working for financial institutions <laughs> in the city and then it changed something like how how you know what have what happened that you got on that path of of you know working with nature and in nature
1: i'm really lucky my parents had a real appreciation for the outdoors and we we always had access to the outdoors so whether it was it was the garden we had a pretty big garden when i was growing up as a kid or we had we had a park down the end of the road called Sutton Park. It's the largest municipal park in Britain, and it's seven miles all the way around. It has lakes and it has woods. And so I had all that access as a kid to this amazing natural landscape. Um, and then, I, just as I got older, I just I just enjoyed being outside doing activities. My dad built a built a boat in the backyard at some point. Um, he built a mirror dinghy It's this kit boat that fits on top of a mini And he he Like built it, he was an engineer And he built this thing and we went and sailed it On local uh, On the local lake and there was a rowboat there And I got to learn how to row And so a lot of, I think my connection came through Outdoor activity to access To be able to see stuff And then It I, I think once I think once I went through college and I started working summer camps and realizing I could actually do activities and I could get paid for them and I could have these adventures in these great places, that's when it started to be. Oh, I can start exploring these other landscapes. I can go to a place that's that's relatively empty. So it. So 80, that was a
0: matter of like, wow, they can actually pay me for that. <laughs>
1: it's huge. Like the sudden realization that. Oh, I can make money guiding. It's like, poof. I mean, you don't make great money. I have to say, mm-hmm. like, you have to figure out your hustles. I think at one point, I'd, at one point, I figured out how to make, like, jewelry, and I had a mobile t-shirt printing business. I could silkscreen t-shirts, <laughs> um, and I could, uh, figured out some dodge for, like, getting people to pay me to print their t-shirts and do silkscreen design, and I started supplementing. And then I'd been guiding for, I think I'd, for, I'd worked in outward bound in Australia for a year, and I came back and I realized that to be, to be recognized in outdoor education, which is kind of a fringe thing at the time, you had to have some credibility. So I went back and I trained as a classroom teacher at Bristol University. And that was the best thing I could have done. I fought it at the time, this formalization of education, but I was just being a bit of a brat. Mm -hmm. And it turned out to be really useful because until you appreciate where young people spend most of their time, most of their educational time is the confine of a classroom. And it is up to the teacher to create this inspiring landscape to draw them into the thrill of learning. Um, Unless you have that appreciation, when you have students just drop in for a few days or three weeks or whatever the time is, you don't give them any tools to go back to be more successful in the classroom if you don't understand how hard it is to learn in that environment.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, for sure, for sure. So you've been in outdoor education, in guiding. Like you were guiding for like fishing, hunting guide, or you just guiding to uh, you know I just actually, show actually, people around?
1: I actually had a job very briefly in southern Africa, um, as a fishing guide. Uh, on on a river in the Transvaal, and I was like 19 and it was it was amazing. Uh, and I had a, I had a really good time. The family I worked for was actually the family of one of the lawyers that, that helped Mandela build his defense. Um, when the show trials happened. he was imprisoned in the 50s. And I, so I worked for a very liberal family for a summer and had this profound experience of being in this beautiful place doing this fly fishing with a split cane rod on on primo trout water, but also being exposed to this, the horror of apartheid, like the absolute horror And this family, the Brewer family hid nothing. They did an amazing job of introducing me to the concept of what what is social justice and the injustice that people do to each other. Like the apartheid, The horror of apartheid is it was accepted by the world for so long and it was, and we perpetuate that level of split in our society all the time. And we, we have, we have to find common ground. And I think I I was acutely aware of my privilege at that moment. It's never left me. Like it's, it's a, it's a, it's a point I look back on and say, that is a lesson that you can't forget
0: yeah yeah Oh, man.
1: Yeah. and and uh,
0: I'm you know I'm I'm going back to your to your guiding um so how did that work because usually you would imagine they were just so good at fishing and they were guiding because usually I would expect that guide is a person who has like an in-depth knowledge of the area and knows every nook and cranny and so on and there you are 19 year old guiding was it the matter that that people were so clueless or like how did that that work
1: no i'd actually well i'd fished on and off as a kid and then my first job when i left high school was i was a fishery officer on a big stately home in britain for like nine seven or eight months and i'd I'd really fine-tuned how to how to fly fish and guiding is a myth guiding is selling a myth it's like you probably know where the animals are you kind of know where the fish are and then you're taking these people on this adventure that they're going to be able to talk about and so you're creating this you're choreographing this story and you know what the end goal is and you actually know how it's probably going to figure out and it's whether you are going to struggle along the way or you're going to make it easy for them. I mean, I know where all the fish are. They're like, they sit right in that eddy, right on that eddy line. And there's a big one in there because I saw it last week. And you can <laughs> say, okay, I'm going to take to this really special place. Nobody else has fished it for a long time. I think there's something in there. And you know, there's a monster in there. And you're like, just drop that thing right on the edge. And no matter what you throw in the water, that it's going to eat it because it's high cold water. And it hasn't got a lot of food in it. And so that, boom. And then you're a hero. You're like, oh yeah, we got this big fish, woo! And <laughs> and you very humbly are like, oh shucks, yeah, that's the way it is. And it's it, people just people are just looking for their story. It's we we live in this environment where there are so few real stories because we everything is has some degree of you kind of find a way to curate your story and make it perfect. And actually the best stories are just total imperfection or all the things that have gone wrong. So if you can, as a guide, if you could bring that in, that, that surviving and overcoming, and it's kind of the hero's journey, like facing adversity, facing betrayal in, you know, like, are you, are you going to make it? And Oh yeah, we've caught something. That's, that's an important part of being a person. Is being on that journey and having that thing to refer to, so that was that was my guiding background. I got you. And the same thing when it goes, when it gets to like guiding on these big Western rivers in the United States, that have enormous volume, and you're out there for days and days and days. I mean, we were on the Grand Canyon for like nearly three weeks, and they're massive, massive waves. I mean, like incomprehensible amounts of water that you, you're rafting, and you are when you're rafting, you're just a little bit below the level of terror of what the guest is experiencing, right? You just got to manage your <laughs> level of terror to manage their level. Of so I would on these really big rapids, you know, if it goes wrong and you lose an oar or something crazy happens, you're in trouble, but your face is not going to say that there might be a little quaver in your voice and you might have a little bit of Shakespeare that pops out, you know, cry havoc, let loose the dogs of war or something. And, but but you're managing them on this journey and they come out at the end. And if they've had this great journey, there's two benefits. One, they leave as a punter, just totally excited. Maybe you've given them some lesson in in, in wild space and why we need to conserve it. Number two is they might tip you a little bit more money, which is always great. All right. Let's be really clear. Like that's subsidizing <laughs> your, your minimum wage job. Um, and then and maybe they'll come back, you know, like it's. But it's, we're all trying to, we're all seeking a story. That's very true. That
0: is very, that like is very true. Like you have a
1: we talked earlier about your story, and I think your story is fantastic. The idea that you shared about, you know, Poland joining the EU and then coming to this new country, becoming a citizen in a new country, I, I, that resonates with me. I think that there's beauty in that, to, to come and bring what you can to a new place. That's, yes oh, thank you thank
0: you that's, that's
1: I think that's. Nice. So cr- I, I am I love that idea <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah 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 that's 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 great listen um, so you're at some like I'm I'm guessing now you can correct me if I'm wrong or like at some point you transitioned or you started um, looking into the safety aspect of being in the outdoors. How did how did that how did, how that be, and I don't even know whether it's a transition or no. I would let you comment on that. How this how this because you've been guiding, you've been educating, and then uh, by reading your your resume, at some point you started to be involved in search and rescue and and, and this sort of things.
1: Well, you, I, I think anybody who's involved in any sort of outdoor pursuit, be it climbing, kayaking, canoeing, surfing at some point there's an accident, you're either having an accident and somebody's rescuing you, or you're watching an accident and you're choosing whether to be involved. So you, you start to develop this sort of risk management piece. And I'd started to train out with bound instructors in the mid-90s maybe and, and doing a lot more conscious training around how to manage activities and how to manage it when it goes wrong. And then that that based on a lot of the expeditions they've done and adventures and sort of personal trips, it started to fill out a resume that said, Oh, I actually have something to offer on a on a search and rescue end. And so in in North Carolina, we add a little outward bound school, the North Carolina Outward bound school, was the technical response unit. For the for the rural search and rescue units, so anything that went vertical or was technical, we would assist this this group of volunteers to safely accomplish these you know to, to finish out a mission. And when I got involved with the Park Service, which was in 2000-ish, it's a the federal government, the Department of the Interior the National Park Service has a very comprehensive search and rescue program and i and i tied into that first as a technician so working just on straight carryouts and doing uh, doing stuff on the water and then that transitioned into a training role and i trained to be a rescue 3 instructor which is one of the largest providers and of certifications in, in swiftwater rescue and rigging and and then the longer you're in it the more your resume builds and the more useful you become because it isn't just about training people. It's having been on missions, and and a lot of what I do or did uh, w- was recovery. Was was actually being one of the people who was on the uh, trying to figure out where somebody had disappeared and searching for them, and then doing the body recovery. Hmm. Uh, mm. And then that th- there's a lot to be. It, I think one of the things that can happen and particularly in outdoor education is you can have a whole bunch of outdoor certific- certificates of leadership and you can have all these qualifications. You spend all this money to get a qualification, but you ne- don't necessarily have a lot of experience. And I think the American model, which rates experience very, very highly, like they, they, the only certificate they looked for was some sort of first aid certificate when I started, which was an involved first aid certificate, wilderness first aid. Uh, after that, it was just experience. Where have you guided? What trips have you done? How long have you been out? I mean, in Australia, I would solo instructed 14 courses. Wow. Which is totally insane. With the largest group, I think, was 28 in the Northern Rivers. And you learn to be a really good ma- manager of people in the outdoors. You learn real quick what works and doesn't work. And I... And so that translates into that whole safety piece is how do you start to work with people to be safe? Like I, I hate those trainings where they, people say, you know enough to be dangerous. Well, it was, a pretty, it was a pretty appalling training if you've just trained someone to be dangerous. We should be training people to be safe. And I think that's, yeah. And so I think a lot about how do I train you to make good decisions out there? yeah yeah that's that's
0: well you know this is this is very good point that being in the outdoors uh, like you said you you you've seen things you and even because you're so close to the elements you're so close to water or wind or 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 all these things then you um it it makes you appreciate the forces and I, i guess this is this is also um part of like probably When a lot of people are getting in trouble because they don't have this, right? They, we we all heard the stories about people who going hiking uh, in in flip flops to the the mountains, or they, you know, inadequately dressed or stuff like that because they just don't have a clue what's going on. So,
1: yeah, yeah, and and there's a disconnect because people haven't been exposed. We should be, we should be anybody who gets goes outside. To experience a peak or to like feel what it's like to be the outdoors, particularly after the last year, we should be doing everything we can to support them. And there's a lot of shaming around, oh, you're inadequately prepared or oh, you should never be out in flip flops. And like, if you don't know what you should be doing, shaming isn't going to help. Shaming never helps, it's bullying. So you have to think about how do I put this person in a position to be successful? So the program we work with, I work with, which is Nature Bridge. Uh, in the national parks, we work with a lot of underserved communities, and it used to be this idea of: of will the mountains basically speak for themselves, and they teach the lessons, and people have a bad experience and they learn from it? Which is, it doesn't work like that. Yeah. It's a Especially hazing. if someone dies, it doesn't right. work. It doesn't work. So what you want to do is give people the right equipment, show them how to use it, coach them while they're using it, and then wow, they have success and they can look after themselves. I think this this school of hard knocks uh, and sort of Monday morning quarterbacking about how the accident happened and being very judgmental, it doesn't help. Like the person's dead or the person's injured or they've had this horrible experience and they may never go out again. And that's a tragedy because we need advocates for wild space. We need advocates for the outdoors. We need advocates to preserve the planet we live on. And that means everybody counts, not just one or two people. Everybody counts.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and you know, also being in the outdoors is probably not more dangerous than being in a city, in a busy city or you know, in the it's like you can equally get into trouble. It's just, you know, arguably like I heard that many times from, from people who spend considerable time outdoors and this is in every single way, my experience as well. That when you out, you're probably more afraid of other people. They would be more dangerous, right? Than yeah. Than the animals, than the elements. They all all, all these things. You know, you, you you go out and you camp, uh, and you know you you hunting deer or whatever else, and you can deal with cold. You can deal with you with rain. You can deal with wind. But then when a bunch of poachers roll in, you know, that's tough. Not, not the cold, not the wind.
1: Right. It's the unpredictability of that, that part of it. The, the human, humans are unpredictable. Most animals, you kind of have an idea about what's going to happen. Like grizzlies. Like when you're in grizzly country, we were up on the Copper River. It's Rango St. Elias. It's on, up in Alaska on the sort of right side. And we did this great run with one boat uh, down to Cordova, which is on the coast. And you're very exposed. You're, you're. It's a big river. It's pretty well traveled, but we we were the only boat out there. And we got out in areas where all you see is grizzly footprints. And grizzly footprints are like, they're enormous. They, there are. They're well over a foot long, and you see the claw marks in the, in the yeah, sand. Yeah,
0: yeah. I, I have a I have a photo next my, my foot next to a brown bear in Poland. Oh, yeah. That's the, the, yeah. the, the which is you know it's slightly smaller, but it's, it's similar size. And and like you said, like oh, this is big footprint. It's much bigger than my than my than my boot. And they're like, yeah, but you see those points there. These are the, its claws. It's like whoa. <laughs> you
1: wouldn't they're want huge. to. <laughs> and and so. You have, I love this, uh, a friend of mine uses the phrase situational awareness a lot. And mm-hmm. you have a high level of situational awareness because the salmon run is happening. And so the bears are congregating at these uh, places where the, the creeks are running into the main river. And that's where you collect water because that's clear water. The river is very silty. And so I'm focused on collecting water. And my friend Lincoln is there with a the shotgun behind me. And He is fully on like he is like he's aware of every movement around us and what's going on But the reality is if a bear really decided to move at that moment, it's closing at 42 feet per second It's moving. It's it's a thousand pound animal moving at 42 feet per second And so you're not going to be able to do much So it's all the stuff you do before it which is you project you make sure they know you're there you make enough noise for everybody to know, okay, we need to reshuffle here. And and you manage the situation. And I think uh, in a, it, people want to be able to control everything, and we can't. We can influence it. And so you can influence the world around you to a degree, and then it's how other people respond. And I think we've got to a point where it's harder to figure out how people are going to respond. There are things that cloud response. Alcohol clouds response, anger clouds response, fear clouds response. So we project. You project confidence, and you project honesty, and you try to project being transparent and non-threatening.
0: Mm-hmm. It's yeah. Would you? Would you? I just want to you know uh, stay for a second on the subject of bears. Is like grizzly bear. Is that is that? true or, or can you confirm that grizzly bear is really attacking you when, it, when you scared him, when it's surprised that you're there? It's, it, it's because that, that's what I heard that although black bears very seldom attack people, when they attack people, they have a bad intent. They want to you know, consume them. While grizzly, they're usually just scared and their reaction is to neutralize threat and move on.
1: Yeah, I, if you look at a lot of grizzly bear reports of attacks, it's because somebody has inadvertently got between a sow and her cubs or has walked up on a kill and the bear is like displacing them. Um, or the bear's like old and it can't find another prey species. Um, but for grizzlies, for the most part, and they're also in more open country potentially, so they see you a bit more. Uh, I I think that's a pretty good description, but they're high functioning. Like, bears are incredibly intelligent. Like they make, they're making decisions. They're not, they're not just doing something. They're making a decision. They make a decision to walk away from you. They make a decision to avoid you. Black bears, it depends a lot about where black bear are. If black bear have been hunted, particularly with dogs in areas where they're hunted by dogs, they're a lot more flighty. They they like have a natural tendency to stay in the shadows. I mean, I spent a decade living in North Carolina in prime bear habitat, and I never saw a bear. But they were heavily hunted by dogs, so they they knew to avoid people. Yeah, yeah. In your in
0: your training courses, when you train people, when you talk to people, is is there more danger coming from actual people um, you know being inadequately dressed or doing some you know, not respecting the water or doing that? Or you know what what element, how what is the percentage of actual dangers that are coming from a wildlife from you know bears and you know some snakes and and like is it, would it be fair to say that this is like a minuscule uh, risk? in comparison to someone, you know, getting in a dress and getting hypothermia or something like that.
1: There's a much, yeah, there's a much better chance you're being struck by lightning than necessarily having a negative <laughs> wildlife interaction. <laughs> but, it, but having said that, if you were in Alaska and you were out on the Katmai during salmon season and you wanted to go down and wander around a salmon river, you're going to have a bear interaction. If you, go, if, you, if, you don't, if you don't pack your food appropriately and have this sort of distant food area and a sleeping area separate in the Arctic, you may have a negative bear interaction. But like for the most part in the lower 48 in the U.S., while there are animal incidents, um, it's more likely – you're much more likely to twist an ankle, go wrong on a navigation exercise – make a terrible series of decisions that cascade into a bad outcome then be attacked by something yeah
0: and like you said it's 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 also that you know like you say that oh shark attacks are so rare you you you're more likely to be you know killed by bees or whatever yeah than than being attacked by a shark but if you're a surfer in an area where there's a lot of seals and a lot of sharks and you're in the water you know, two hundred days or one hundred eighty days a year. Well, then your probability goes up. You're probably more likely being, you know, bitten by shark than killed by bees.
1: Well, it kind of comes to that point of where, whether you're prepared to modify your behavior. So, like, so I live in a rural area, and one of my neighbors just just told me that he isn't riding at the moment because we've got too many black bears coming in because there's very little water work. in in the surrounding areas and there's good water where we live and mountain lions and then i was at a meeting like two days ago and a friend of mine was like oh yeah i drove through town and there was a big mountain lion right on the road and you you modify how how willing are you to modify what you do to preserve the natural world because the way i always thought about it when i mountain biked in these areas is I had a high level of awareness all the time, and I I paddled. I would go on my bike rides in the middle of the day rather than the evening or early morning to reduce the chance of me having a negative interaction with the mountain lion. It's already low, you know, if it's mountain in the area, but the mornings and evenings, you're more likely to bump into something because that's kind of when they're active. So, yeah, if you, if you want to go swimming with the seals, then you, pro- you may have a, a negative interaction with a great white. If you want to go hand fishing for salmon in the Katmai, you're probably going to have a negative experience with, with, with grizzly. Or people do crazy stuff, like in Yellowstone National Park, people are always getting out and they're trying to pet the buffalo. And it's... <laughs> It's just super.
0: Yes, yeah, I think I've I, I I seen these videos where, where where someone just goes flying because the buffalo kind of like,
1: get out of the other. Room. Yeah, they're, they're totally. And it's this disconnect. It's like, on the one hand, it's stupid. Like, people have these terrible accidents getting in these scalding hot water features in Yellowstone. And it, Yellowstone's amazing. There are these basins with like water, geese geysers going off and mud sort of boiling and. And somebody's dog like jumped in one of the pools and the person jumped in to get it. And the water's super heated and she got like burns over 90% of her body. And, and you, it's just this sort of, the one hand she responded to, to, to her dog. She's trying to rescue her dog. But then the thinking isn't there of like, oh, this water's incredibly scalding. I'm going to be in trouble because you just haven't been exposed to those things before. And it's just tragic. And all these people every year in our national park in Yosemite National Park, there are probably twelve to eighteen deaths a year. I think I've I've worked seven or eight this year. And they they have the full range of the full range of of of, of a, a tragic accident and then somebody just uh, they have a cardiac arrest or they just they just don't wake up from a from the sleep it's a natural it's, it's an unexplained natural death and uh w- none of them came here planning to die you know they they, they it's just That's a sort thing. Of tragic thing that happens or there's a thing of beauty like uh, years ago i responded to a a death with somebody who just hadn't woken up and their family was there and they'd gone to wake their uh, family member in the morning and they hadn't woken up. And there was this amazing thing because the family were reflecting how much that person loved the National Park and how many years they'd been coming. they would be coming for decades. And they died in this place that they loved. And then all of this community around them started coming in to share – to witness this loss. And I think that's something that doesn't happen a lot in society is that when death happens, we tend to move away and be like, oh, I'm I'm not too sure what to say. So we distance ourselves and we leave these grieving people even more isolated. At that moment, this campsite stepped up and they discussed this person's life and they were sharing stories. There was tears and there was laughter. And it was the most wonderful thing to have this celebration and recognition of this person's worth. And I I think that's another part of the job that I work, which is family liaison, which is when we have a search or we have a recovery. So when you say search, it's viable. We're looking for a live person. When we move to recovery, we've accepted or have information the person is dead. I work with the families to be the, uh, voice of the incident command to allow them to hear what's going on and also to ask questions. And I figure out how to get the responses they need. And a big part of that job is being there at a time when a family is in crisis because they've had this thing that's flipped their world and you're, you're there to help. You're there to provide, uh, not necessarily not grief counseling, but you're there to be present, um, and caring.
0: And and this is like excellent uh, moment to mention that you have a book. Uh, I do. When accident happens, uh, title is "When Accident Happens: Managing Crisis Communication as a Family Liaison Officer." There you go. That's the book. Um, and it's a it's a really detailed you're going into a lot of details like exactly what is your, what is the role and why why that role is needed um for for family liaison officer the when i was reading the book the the question that um because there's so many different there's so many different types of these accidents, right? There are oh, there yeah. are some there are some that are that are taking several hours, and there are some that take that goes on for a days. So, it, 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 and you kind of like going through all the scenarios and all the possible options. But there's in a in the rescue team, there is also option of like just liaison officer. Why there's a specifically need a family liaison officer, or or is that role interchangeable? Well. You,
1: uh when, you, when, you're, when an operation is running, the incident commander is, is completely focused on resolving whatever the challenge is. So we've got a disappeared person. They've been gone for four days. It's, it's a light aircraft cr- crash in the backcountry. There's a big winter storm coming in. The incident commander is focused on how do I get my air support, ground teams? How do I safely deploy in the field for a search? How do I, how do I coordinate that whole thing? If that person has to work directly with the family, there is a profound emotional load that they will take on. It's unavoidable because you're seeing people who are like, where is my dad? Uh, What are you doing? Why aren't you doing this? And so essentially the family liaison officer provides the insulation from the response, that search that allows everybody to concentrate on their task and meets the family where they're at and then helps to sort out what they need and bring that to the instant commander at very specific times where they can respond. So it's it's essentially giving a buffer an insulation between the ops and the family's needs. And when when the family doesn't feel like it's getting what it needs, it can either go on social media or go to mainstream media, and it can start saying, we've probably all heard it, I don't know what's going on. Nobody's telling me anything. And that's the sign quite often of not having a uh, a working family liaison uh, set up. They can still get frustrated with you. They can still be disappointed. But your job is to give them undeniable facts. So we have 120 people on the ground. They're, they're searching four different sectors. We're running two helicopter operations. We've got a storm coming in in two days. We're going to reevaluate at four o'clock whether we're evacuating those people or we're leaving them on the ground. Those are all the things that you, you're conveying. This, and, and you're breaking it down into a, a very complex series of like sheets and acronyms. You're breaking it down to a digestible form and giving them it in writing so that they can do something with it. Yeah.
0: And you know, when I was reading the book, my thought was that the advice—I don't even know whether it's an advice or whether it's a just in- instructing. You're instructing, you know, about different things. That has application in so many situations in life. This is this is like like this is to some extent a very extreme situation where you have this family who is, you know, gravely worried about their family member, their son. They're like, this is this is really tough and and hard situation. But in those situations, you know all the rules that apply in those situations—they are just amplified. But they are equally applied to every day, like how you speak to people. How you know it—it it very much resonated with me. Like you not try to, you know, promise anything. You not try to smooth it over or sweeten anything. You're just giving facts. You're communicating clearly. With respect and with having in mind, like what is your role? What you trying to uh, to? And you know, I was reading that, and, and it's like, man, th- like this is not only for people who want to go to search and rescue or be family liaison officer. Like anyone, I think, who deals with people and communicates with people in their day to day job, for example, you are a leader in a in a company. Man, uh, that's that's a lot of lessons there that can be applied in a day to day.
1: Yeah, we've had entire societies traumatized by COVID and sort of been distanced in communication. And it's something that I I have to work on every day. I mean, I'm not perfect. Like I'm a deeply flawed person. Like I think the book being re- the book I wrote is a really good eye opener for me too, and a reminder of, is to try and be kind and treat people with respect at all times. And it and that's and try to recognize where people are at. Like When you're in a store and there's somebody ahead of you and they've got kids and it's taking forever for them to check their stuff out and the kid keeps throwing stuff and have a little bit of compassion. Like for the last year and a half, that person was a parent and a teacher and a social worker and they were trying to hold all these things together. Be kind. Like it takes a lot less effort. Be less judgmental.
0: Yeah, man. That's it most preach be less judgmental this is what i see on social media like people like their entire you know personas are are sometimes hinged around judging people and oh this done this is wrong this is this they should do this they should do that it's like come on just give a little bit of a leeway
1: but but also think about how lonely those people are Mm -hmm. like what what is what life are they living that that is the way they have, that's the only way they have to express their frustrations or have control. What, how sad an existence that must be. Mm -hmm. Like to spend that much time on hate. Hate takes so much effort. Like to hate something takes an extraordinary amount of commitment and like effort. And it just, oh, it just draws you down. Whereas love and kindness it's actually a lot more relaxing and it's a lot more beneficial and it's actually easier for the most part. There's definitely sometimes it's really hard to love. You know, you're like, Oh God, like, how am I going to get to that point? But (laughs) there is, it is, the idea of being less judgmental is to be empathetic is to be, uh, and I was struck by this because when I've dealt with over the years, colleagues who've ended their lives and and i've worked with members of the public who've ended their lives and uh, the first time i i I dealt with a, a suicide incident i in the back of my mind had so much judgment i had all of this idea about how selfish this person had been and how they had not thought about anybody else and, and it and it sort of it really molded around. And then I started working with the family. And very quickly I had this, this picture painted of how wonderful this person was, that they were multilingual, they'd had all of these cool experiences, and they'd also had some really challenging hard times. And they'd had incredible obstacles to overcome. And and at some point it had become so much that they saw the only way forward was to end their life. Hmm. And I was like, oh, I'm a I'm a I'm a complete idiot here. Because I didn't have to have judgment at that at any time during this. All I had to have was compassion and empathy and care because the tragedy has happened. It doesn't need me to come in on the back end and make it worse. And it I I think when people I've had colleagues who've ended their lives because of you know issues in and around the pressures of work the, the 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 struggles they've gone through with mental health and that was their out and I am troubled by that still um because you wonder what else you could do but the other thing is i could I must never have judgment I must never say it's it's nothing but a tragedy it's nothing but a tragedy when someone ends their life,
0: yeah. 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 That's, that's very unfortunate always. Um, and, and you're right. This is, this is all about saying, you know, I often say like, I, you know, I disagree with someone, but I understand how they could think that way. I I think this, this is, this is, this is like, no one tells you or anyone that you need to you know, agree with someone, but it's just you. you understand what is like, what is their motivation? Like, you know, I, I, I in many, in, 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 all conversations, this this kind of like how, how that person could arrive at that I could see myself being that person kind of thing. Right.
1: Yeah. And there's an insidious group that will maneuver always for power. Right. And, 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 and that's kind of the, the, the lesson of society is, is who you elect, is <laughs> um, going to represent you, but do they actually represent you? And I think, in my experiences around the world, I I would say I've I've experienced the very worst in people, like terrible terrible cruelty, see, seen or witnessed terrible terrible cruelty. But I've also, in the same culture, seen incredible kindness and generosity, and and that that we we have that capability. We, we all have that opportunity to be kinder and to listen and to also call out injustice and to say, hey, I have privilege here and I need to be quiet let other people speak. And I need to I need to be there as an ally and to support change in society. Um, and in the same way, I need to stand up for injustice and I need to shout very loudly when something is wrong. Um, and he. I think we're at this, 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 this position where s- society seems to be losing hope.
0: Mm, I think so. And,
1: and actually, this is the time where me in my generation has to be talking about hope because we need to inspire young people to realize there is a way forward and that they, they've got a, a, a very difficult burden. But we need to talk with optimism about the future. Because if we if we lose young people's as a sort of future for looking after the world, for fixing what we've done to it environmentally, for being more equitable in society, if we, if we lose their enthusiasm and their innovation, that will take more than a hundred years to catch up. And it and so I think wild spaces and nature has a has a real role to reset people on. Feeling good, on feeling uh, the forces of nature and feeling the refreshment and how that can top you up. And with really good guided discussion, you can get a lot of people um, to buy into that. And then you use that as the leaping off point for creating a fairer society, for, for not just individuals and different cultures, but for all the animals, the plants, everything that inhabits our world needs to have people who speak up for it
0: yeah no that's 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 for sure and you're touching on the on the this this idea that we spoke on the podcast many times where how therapeutic nature is and being outdoor is and for your mental health and for your well-being and for for, you know like everything you go somewhere uh, you know outdoors to the woods or whatever you step out of the car and you go like like everything yeah. is slower everything goes slower you you kind of feel more see more you're you all of a sudden discover that you have a sense of smell and you can smell all the things not
1: only you know like a car exhaust <laughs> and you re- and your resting pulse comes down yes and your respirations become deeper and you suddenly have room in your head to think about other stuff. One of, one of the things I work with is this thing called psychological first aid. It's, it's based around something called the stress continuum that was developed by the Marine Corps in the United States. And it kind of grades you about whether you're you're functioning or you're injured. It's just, it's like four categories. And it, you, you look at it as far as your mental health into like, if you're in green, right, you're functioning. You're, you've got healthy relationships. You've got connections in your community. You're doing the things you love to do. You're eating healthily. You're making healthy decisions. If you're in the red, you're injured. It's at a point where you're the trauma that you've experienced has actually put you in a position where you can't handle complexity. You can't you, – you isolate. You start doing unhealthy things. You go into this cycle of depression, and it's this tool – to allow you to sort of recognize where you and your colleagues are at. We use it search and rescue a lot to like, look at the impact of missions and oh, okay. to help you as a peer or colleague to either help somebody track back into green, into this healthy position or help them seek professional care when they're up on that red end. Um, and it, the thing I think about a lot is, is trauma. So you've got, we've all been through a traumatic experience with COVID and Uh, Trauma. a good definition of trauma that I like is the idea that uh, you're unable to live the life you want to live because you have this thing that's stopping you. Yeah. And so people can be traumatized through war and they see terrible things and they do terrible things. People can be traumatized from childhood. People can be traumatized from being a witness to a bombing. People can be traumatized X, Y. There's lots of reasons why, but it manifests in the same way. And one of the key things that turns up is when you're in that latter stage of, of, of reacting, sort of heading towards being injured, you stop doing the things that you love. So you stop. We looked at ski patrollers who do this, and ski patrollers talk about they don't make the extra effort to go out and get fresh fresh tracks in the morning or go to secret powder stashes up on the hill. They don't do that. They they used to do that, and they don't do it anymore. For me, I had a kind of a rough summer, and we try to figure out what was going on. And the thing I used to do is I used to be on the water all, as much as I could. I'd be in the water or on the water boating as much as I could. And I was like, Oh, I got to get back to be on the water. So I bought a roof rack. I got my boat on top of my car ready to go everywhere. I drive my boats on the roof. And so I can get on the river on the way to work back from work. I can do that. So I used to do it is now I always do it back in green with that. And I think, I think it's society we need to we need to sort of be honest about how trauma affects each and every one of us and not be again, not be judgmental, but think about how we work together to produce something that's healthier. So in search and rescue, a big part is connection. It's like you need to be connected to your peers. And so there's a sort of social aspect, there's a check-in aspect, there's a sort of openness to people struggling and not being judgmental so that we can get to this Healthier position because you see some gnarly stuff in search and rescue. Yeah, I can imagine.
0: And listen, so I I have a question: like when you're like going, you're in the red, or you're going in the red, and you notice that you're, you know, not doing things you love. Right? You used to be going fishing, or you used to go and be, you know, boating or whatever, and you're not doing. Can you kind of force yourself into doing this and that way you you push yourself towards more towards green or is it doesn't yeah. work that way you need to work differently oh you yeah, can
1: there, there are some people who are able to do that like one of the exercises i do is i have people identify this sort of what do you do when you're healthy in relationships what do you do when you're healthy when you're eating healthily and so they have this roadmap that says this is green and so when they get into that really stressed out end they look back at that piece of paper that's hopefully on their refrigerator. And they go, oh, I I need to do this. I'm not being physically active. Like, when I'm not physically active, I'm a bad bear. Like, I, I'm not happy. I have to be physically active. So if I'm cooped up inside because we've got a three-week uh, fire running and it's just dumping three and 400-count air particular on the house, you can't go outside, you've got to do something. So we bought fitness equipment, and I, I can get on my spin bike or the run machine, and I can be physically active indoors. But yeah. some people can find their way back. They can be guided back by their families. But there's also, if if you're in that, if you're in, if you're living in that red zone, that where you're injured, your body has changed. So you go from this fight flight adrenaline sort of response where you see something is that a bear? You you sort of everything elevates and then you realise it's a bush. It's not a bear. And then there's this mental thing that goes, dink, and it just flips it. And it actually tells you to sort of to stop being aroused. It, it takes you out of that fight flight. When you're in the red, you're, hy- you're in hyper arousal. And you're actually using a, dr- a, a, a hormone called cortisol, which is physically changes your body. It like lays down fat. You, if you see cops and they have a big fat belly, That isn't just donuts, that's stress. That's cortisol laying down fat because the body's saying, hey, we might be in trouble. We need to have a food source for later in simplistic terms.
0: Gotcha. Oh, that's interesting.
1: So you you have to change. So this hyperarousal, you have to find a way to snap out of being in hyperarousal and accept that you're safe in order to reverse back to a healthy position. It's a lot of science and I'm kind of sitting here riffing on it. Um, but it, it's really well backed up in in practice. That if you you start looking at the, your family or your friends around you, you'll start picking out where people are at, and you'll understand why because they've got kids at home and they're trying to teach, and they just lost their job, and so and so's got COVID. It, like this entire cocktail of challenge and trauma is happening to all of us.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's very that's very. Um, good point and very interesting um, so maybe now it's a good good moment to ask you like you mentioned in 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 your you mentioned that obviously in your book but also something that interests me like the importance of physical fitness for you know being safe in the outdoors but but also you mentioned the importance of the exercise and and fitness for A job in a in a you know search and rescue or in in these sorts of sort of teams. Um, I I curious your comments. I I presume this is like both the the uh, you know mental aspect that we just discussed, but also being physically fit and in shape. And it it makes you on one hand safer if you're in the the outdoors, and on the other hand, lets you better do your your job during actions during during.
1: Yeah, I mean you've got to you've got to be you've got to be fit for the art that you're being asked to practice. So in Yosemite, we have a lot of really uh, technical rock rescue, and it's 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 a very it's world renowned for rock climbing. It's rocktober right now in Yosemite, which means there are thousands of climbers <laughs> have descended to take advantage of this cold clear weather that we have, <clears throat> and so if you're going to be on the climbing end, the technical end there, you need to be able to climb hard. I'm talking really hard and have multiple ascents on these two and a half thousand, three, three 3000 foot routes to get on the squad. Like I'm, I'm good at like going in a helicopter, being dropped at the top and saying, look at that knot and tell me when it's not working. That's my job on technical rigging. Like I'm not up on the rock face doing anything because I don't climb hard enough and they don't have that interest. But to be on the water, I need to be out either swimming or I need to be out boating and I need to be around the, the river a lot, checking out hazards and seeing what's going on. Uh, you, you need to practice your art if you're going to be involved in rescue because it's your personal experience that will keep you safe, not necessarily your training. It's the depth of personal experience that you bring because that's where you build an intuitive response. That's where your body mechanic works naturally. So if you're not used to walking across talus slopes and jumping from this little pinnacle to the next one with a big pack on, then you are going to get injured. If you haven't done that sort of as a daily run, you're going to get injured because you're not used to it. So there's a – you've got to be – you don't have to be superhuman But you have to be robust.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So what what would you what
0: what would be your recommendation for like training, like exercises for for outdoors people? Is that is there like a like a basic stuff that you would recommend for absolutely
1: anyone? Well, I think when you get old like me, it's low impact. Because your body's kind of on the edge of breaking. So I do a lot of cycling, because that's really good for just stamina and it doesn't stress out your joints in the summer. I'll try and swim and just be in the water. Um, and then i I boat like two or three times a week. I'll try and get out and just be working my muscles and making sure I got my balance point out there. And then you'll see people who sort of have different approaches like CrossFit. Do you have CrossFit in Ireland? Yeah, like everywhere, I think. Yeah, it's like I always, I, it's, like a, it's like a cult, you know? It's a bit like, yeah, bit it's, like, yeah, yeah it's, yeah. it's just like people shouting at each other and talking about. I love that joke which says, How do you know someone does co- CrossFit? Because they keep telling you over and over and over. <laughs> yeah, and they and tell over you again. about it. <laughs> yeah. And they always tell you, which is great. Like they're out there doing their thing, they found that thing that works for them. I think everybody has to find the thing that works for them. But whatever it is, if you can do it outside, it will bring more reward because we're, there's more research that's saying how natural light affects us, like morning light and evening light, and how feeling the wind on your face and not the sweaty gym is different. And then having the textures and the sounds and all of those things, they're it's the natural symphony that we need to sort of listen to. And I I, I think the, the, the more you immerse yourself in your fitness program in that landscape, the healthier you'll be. Like, you're out, you're on the coast. Do you know what the sound of the waves is like? I do. I do. I
0: also know how they, what the sound of the winter storms is like.
1: <laughs> yes. And so to go out and feel that and feel that spray and feel that wind carrying the salt all the way inland, and seeing the seagulls start to decide they don't want to be on the coast anymore and come on. Like, that's all part of fitness. It isn't just muscles. It's this sort of elasticity of your brain constantly being stimulated and learning and registering and reacting to natural things. It's – it's. I, I think back to, like, uh, as a kid, we, we were in a safari park, these sort of nutty, you know – high fence things with a bunch of animals in it.
0: Uh-huh. And we
1: saw a giraffe give birth. I must have been like seven years old. And I looked over and there was a giraffe with six legs. And then it's very dramatic because the, the the giraffe calf comes from this enormous height and just hits the ground. Yeah. I saw that when I was a kid and I remember it. And like it's all of that's that sort of elasticity, all that, that's fitness, all of that telling stories, remembering things, coming back to it. If you're just indoors, it's harder to have compelling stories. It's harder to have the range of stories. So it would be great if you could have indoor stories and outdoor stories because you know, that's more. So your fitness, if you can get outside, you can have more stories.
0: That's very well that's very well explained, Moose. I I, I love it. And, yeah, um, for sure there, there are people who – you know, like we, we like, like I said, we're 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 privileged in some way that we have the access to outdoors, right? Oh yeah, hugely. So there's there's a lot of people who just live in 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 the city or in town, and they're, you know, going to the gym or even having a gym at home is their only option, because you know, going outdoors is 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 drive is you know hour drive two hour drive they can't afford that, um, so for sure they they will stay fit doing what they can but i agree like whenever you have an opportunity man you, you gotta go out and like feel that wind on your face
1: so i i grew up in birmingham uh in the middle of england and my dad loves birmingham my dad is all o- my dad's traveled the world like as a businessman but he loves birmingham and astonville is my soccer team very proud brummy um and my dad, on Sundays, every once in a while, we would drive and go in the city and we would explore it, and, and he would be very proud to say two things about Birmingham. One of them is the bell that was on the Titanic was made in Birmingham, right? And he'll say, I'll tell you one thing that worked on that ship, the bell worked. All right, which <laughs> I really, really like that story. And the other thing uh... is that Birmingham has more miles of canal than Venice, so below the street level there's this myriad of canals that birmingham has rediscovered um because it was an industrial hub and there were all these warehouses and we would go to gas street basin and we'd walk up and down the canals and i loved it because there was just there was like this subterranean world below the city with all this myriad of, of, of ways to get around and so when I say get outside, it doesn't have to be, there's nature in cities. There's nature everywhere. There's like, there's little flowers coming up through the pavement that you can look at and go, oh my god, that's fetch That is actually edible. I don't know whether I would eat it in the city because it's covered in lead. But like, there are fish in the canals, there are ducks in the canals, there are voles in the canals. There are all these things that we just look for detail. And I, I think there are a lot of people undoubtedly who are underserved by their elected officials in having open space. But with public transport, there's opportunity. And I think I loved wandering around the, the neighborhood. I loved, in the, when I lived in Bristol, I loved wandering around Bristol because it was, there are all these sort of quirky little neighborhoods and they all have their own character and they have this richness in culture. And so, mm-hmm. and, and, and that's that other piece about adventuring and expeditioning is I've been very lucky to go to the Arctic. I've been very lucky to go to the central Kalahari. I've had all this fortune. But I also really enjoy exploring out of my backyard. Like I love discovering stuff, a new road to bike on, a funny little rock outcrop, a new bend in the river. There's there's all this adventure in our backyards that in Britain, when I was growing up, there were a lot. Of, there were a lot of books out there about adventures in the backyards because we didn't have a lot of, of giant wildlife. Um, mm-hmm. And I would get excited about hedgehogs, and I would get excited about sparrows. And again, it's 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 not better or worse. It just is. And they, so I think it's there. You just need to have somebody who's gonna mentor you or encourage you sometimes to take that step to enjoyment and knowledge.
0: Yeah, for sure, for sure. Out of your, all your travels and all the places that you've been, um, which is, is there one that you would say is like most dangerous, most likely, you're most likely to have an accident or is it all depends on people rather than actual location?
1: Oh, Australia is really hard to beat. <laughs> I, like, I didn't want. I didn't want to say that. Like, why? why?
0: <laughs> is it because of all the poisonous snakes and spiders and stuff like that? Is that? Well, the I, like,
1: I So, uh, some of my family is Australian, and I, I. At some point, one of them said, "How can you tell an Australian when they're going to throw a dog uh, a stick for the dog?" And mm-hmm. I was like, "I don't know." And he goes, "Well, you kick the stick because you don't know if it's a snake. Like you, <laughs> you don't just reach down and grab something." And it's always stayed with me. And so, in Australia, there is so much that just that you can get in trouble with. Like there's snakes, there's spiders, there's jellyfish, there's croc. I had a crocodile briefing. Like when I was working in Queensland, I literally had someone sit down with me and go, "Okay, this is what. Okay, this is what we're going to do with the crocodiles." And like you're like, "Oh my god, are you being serious?" And they they had a rule which was. Uh, if you slept next to a watercourse, the instructor would be closest to the water with the theory that a crocodile coming up and out the water would take you first. That is a really good rule for making sure you you camp a long way back from the water. Um, and then I had kids capturing, like, there's a snake called the red belly black snake. Mm-hmm. And I want to say it's in the top 10 poisonous snakes. It's not a particularly aggressive snake. It's just got really strong venom. I had a student catch one to bring it back into camp to show me. Like, hey, check this out. <laughs> <Get> like a <laughs> like a four-foot red belly black snake that was all wriggly. I'm like, you need to go and put that down right now. And he like, <laughs> go and put it down. We had, somebody, we had somebody disappear. We had an instructor who was doing a resupply on Hinchinbrook Island. Hinchinbrook Island's on the East Coast. It's out from Ingham. It's, you know, subtropical. And it's, it's covered in stuff that can bite you. And it's got a lot of crocodiles in that area. And we had somebody who didn't come in that night. So we were out on the beach, which is also dangerous. Like climbing, the, uh, we climbed some sort of light tower to see if you could see his light out there. And he had this little motorboat and he just decided not to do the crossing because it was it had got choppy and the tides were playing up. And we didn't know for 12 hours whether a crocodile had got him. So oh, it's God. like, it's, it's, but that's, that's exciting like it, the 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 rush of everything being okay it sounds awful because it's of this you're on the edge of this disaster but the relief is is a this profound thing but Australia hands down for stuff that can go wrong is like okay okay hands down it's the, it, it, how about
0: Africa is it like a second is it like on a distant second
1: uh yeah I mean like you could be really dumb out there. Like you see a lot of people doing dumb stuff like mm. elephants. Botswana has some of the, probably has the last or has had the last of the great herds in Africa. Cause it had a particularly uh, aggressive uh, anti-poaching policy. And so they, we saw very large herd of elephant and you can, you can get close to elephant if they see you and they figure out you're not threatening. They'll in th- your respect for you, you can be 25, 30 feet away when the, when the herd comes through, which you we were. Um, and then somebody went out there who's a bit rowdy and drunk, and they got charged like five minutes later. And you're like, well, that was kind of dumb. Hippos. Hippos yeah. are the thing you kind of watch out for. We went fishing on the Okavango. Oh, wow. Big, big river that comes down out of Angola. And it, it it sort of it gets geographically confused and it doesn't go to the ocean, it goes out and just flows out to the Kalahari and just sinks into the sand. And it's this enormous river, this great delta. And you're out there fishing for tiger fish, I think we were fishing for, and and the guide is in this little motorboat and they're like looking around, and then you hear this like oh, 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 oh. Oh, and God. that's the hippos, and you're like, oh, oh, <laughs> And you just got kind of to figure out where you need to be. Um, <laughs> yeah. I like oh, But man. It's, it's, I mean, so lucky. I mean, like, there was this show in Britain on Sunday nights called The World About Us when I was growing up. And we'd watch it at 7.30 or something on a Sunday. And sometimes it would be so boring. It would be around some, for me, boring, like nuclear physics. I wasn't that excited about that. But if it was about Africa and about, like, Jane Goodall or something like that, they would have this 30-minute show. And it was awesome because you got exposed to this world. And then I read these books by Gerald Durrell, which were like, he was a animal collector who had a zoo ultimately in Jersey. And I I just, just vacuumed those up. And, and then years later I was working in Bristol zoo and I met one of the guys who was in Gerald Durrell's books. Oh, wow. And I'm talking to this guy and it suddenly becomes clear that as a kid I had read about this guy, and it's England. We're not good at emotions, and I break down in tears in his office because it's just <laughs> too much. And he, Chris looks very uncomfortable. He's just like shuffling papers and like I uh, like this, and I sort of spent a few minutes trying to get myself together because I've met one of my heroes. Yeah, and um, and you. Yeah, and then I years a few years later a few years ago, Jane Goodall did a did a talk for our organization. And I love Jane Goodall. Jane Goodall's this hugely influential conservationist and this person who's on this mission. And I had this moment to go and shake her hand and I didn't because I was too nervous. Oh wow. And but at the same time, there's part of me it's like it's preserved this sort of star quality because you I can't remember how we got to this point, but like there are these influences in our life that we don't know about until much later. Mm -hmm. And you rely on your parents or your siblings or your friends to sort of inadvertently give you these opportunities. My parents made very conscious decisions about the natural world. They made very conscious decisions about educational opportunity. And I have benefited enormously from that profoundly. My life would have been, it wouldn't have been worse. It would have been different. And I've had this adventurous life because of these sacrifices and these these decisions my parents made. And I'm eternally grateful for that. And so in a way, we need to, we should look at everybody around us as being our kids and our friends as our kids, because you want to give them the best. So how do you give everybody your best and give opportunity? How do you how do we look at society as a family that we try to give, give a better world? And I think my parents' generation gave their kids a better world, and then we squandered it. You think so? Yeah, I, th- I think we did. I, th- I think we're, we're, we've made decisions in my generation that have not been beneficial to the next generation, and we have to be accountable to that. And we have to have not a reckoning – but we we have to have a – we have to articulate that and we have to figure out a way out of it. And, and, and it goes back to that message of hope and optimism. We have to make sacrifices for the next generation. We have to change the way we do things. Um,
0: no, that's for sure, you know, for it, when, it, when it comes to, you know, our connection with nature, let's say. Yeah man uh, I gotta admit we've done a terrible job uh, but you know like you can you always have this other side that yeah but look you know education there's less people living in poverty than ever were and you know there's probably also much safer and you know all these things so um maybe it was just too much to do everything at once i don't know
1: well yeah and i and i think there's still massive inequality like you look at true entire continents that haven't got access to access to covid vaccine yet you, you look at our own societies places that have, have had historical disparity and are undisturbed remain underserved um, and we perpetuated a sort of destruction of the natural world um, at a cost to largely it, it, there's an interesting argument about conservation, which if you look at it and you look at the idea of what conservation is, there's a legitimate argument that conservation it has a significant impact on indigenous people. Like if you look at national parks, yep. national parks removed indigenous people from their boundaries and said, "Da here we've got all these animals. And you're like, yeah, but these people over here, this culture, has been living in harmony with these animals for millennia. And we've got this sort of arrogance that says this is the way, and it isn't. And in in the United States, there's this massive awakening around fire, the Mediterranean Mm -hmm. in particular, Mediterranean climate, where indigenous culture, culture that was here for millennia, used fire to preserve and maintain natural habitats. So they... They they perpetuated regular burns. They reduced fuel load. They changed the stands into these magnificent forests that supported these enormous herds of animals or the grasslands that supported all the buffalo through the use of fire. And now fire agencies are going back to traditional users and saying, how did you use fire? When did you burn? What type of fire did you burn? How intense? And so we arrogantly think fire science is this new thing. Because it's like been around so some of the seventies with the title. But actually it's been around for like umpteen thousand years and there's this amazing knowledge in, in Australia, in southern Africa, probably through the Mediterranean. I don't know specifically on indigenous culture in in the Mediterranean, but in in, in North America, you are seeing crews of tribal representatives now playing a more active role in some places by no longer nationally. In, in introducing sane fire regimes into natural systems
0: that's interesting you know that's interesting conversation because um among many people let's call them environmentalists right let's use this umbrella term environmentalists they you know you almost see the sentiment of or, pe- or humans is, is all bad. Let's we need to go back to the natural way and we need to go back because we, you know whatever humans done, the intervention, the hunting, the whatever is bad. But then you know they, they they're, they're quickly getting against the argument like you said like well yeah, but people were here for like you know it's it's not like last 200 years, right? And like, is it is it? But so, where you, where you go? Where you do, where you doing this um, sort of colonialist conservation? That you know, yeah. no no people in there. Like, let's get it. and even um, you know, there are discussions where you 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 don't need to go that far to hundreds or thousands of years. But but even like right now, discussions about rewilding in Scotland. Um, there is a you know, a lot of people who pushing back and say like, hey, we live here, right? Like, like, uh, you know, how can you talk about the uh, Scottish Highlands as a blank canvas where we're going to, you know, rewild and put all the wolves and all that? Like, like, there is a culture of people who live there, actually, and and they they in in some sort of a harmony. It's hard, man. It's they, like, I, I'm not pretending I have an answers to that. Um it's very complex.
1: It is. And I think in, a, in in communities or countries where they have so little, why should the West sit there and say, but you need to save that. Like, because we've ruined ours. Like, we got rid of it. <laughs> exactly. Like, we got yeah. rid of our forests, like, by building these ships to come to your country, like, umpteen centuries ago. Like, we have to be really, use the word colonialism. I think that's it there's an educational load to that like is it's okay to talk about the truth and the horror of this because otherwise we don't really reconcile uh we have no reconciliation to move forward on um and you you don't you don't build a future school of thinking by ignoring the past you have to consider it today to produce a better a better tomorrow and i think the hunting's a really interesting one is i, I I, I went through this whole thing around hunting is good or bad. What you know one of the things the things that preserves public lands and public lands in the United States cover millions of acres. It's, it's, it's massive amount of land that that we have access to as public lands. And one of the loudest lobbies is the hunting lobby. And they elk hunters, deer hunters, and there's a resistance sometimes for them to be at the table but in truth in some ways they have a more intuitive understanding of the land and the way that the relationships happen than many other groups they definitely have it you know more than a mountain biker zipping through these people are sitting behind a tree for 4 days waiting for a bull elk to come through bugling and listening to the sound of bro- of grass moving like they are they're immersed they and know think, the
0: wind. They know the thermals. They know all these things.
1: And the, so, uh, up in the northwest of uh, northwest uh, part of the United States, there's a uh, there's a peninsula that comes out from um, opposite Seattle called the Olympic Peninsula. And out on the northwest corner is the tr- is the tribal lands of the Makah. And the Makah are the only tribal group. That harvest were allowed to harvest gray whales in the in the lower forty eight, and it's very it's been, it was a very controversial thing when it started back up. But this this group, this tribal group, their identity is tied up with the ocean, is tied up with millennia of harvesting on a sustainable take. And who am I to turn around and say your your cultural value, the thing that you your culture revolves around the whale? Um, you shouldn't have that right to do it. Like it's, it's if you, if the purity of environmentalism or the, 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 the thing that the, the catch-all is this idea of stopping people from doing stuff is, is what a lot of opponents come out with. And I think we need to shift the conversation to what it allows us to do, to have healthy ecosystems, to have contiguous wildlife corridors that allow for migration that is uninterrupted. To have conscious thought about management so that people who are, who are, who struggle because of a sheep kill, because of lynx or because of wolf, they are compensated. Like, so there's balance there, but you can't, you can't have farmers pitted against bird watchers pitted against fell runners pitted against that. You actually all have a common interest, which is, which is access and use.
0: Man, this is this is like a uh, guiding guiding theme almost of the of the podcast. That, that that there is a there is a common ground, and and this is so unfortunate that we seem to be focusing so much on what is dividing us, rather than where is a common ground. Um, I I find it uh, very unfortunate. Um, there's one other thing. I, I, there's many other things I would I would like to know your 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 um, view on and in your opinion. Uh, we, we we don't have that much time <laughs> to cover all the everything. But uh, you mentioned that hunting that whale hunting um, in, in the, so I had a, a a lot of discussions just recently around uh, whaling that goes in the pharaohs. And you you're obviously um, yeah. familiar with the with the situation, yeah. and you know the the discussion was around like so obviously the there's like um, proponents or let's let's say Faroese say like yeah the hunt is sustainable. Again, it's embedded in our culture. We've done this for for many many hundreds or thousands of years. Uh, the the whales are getting eaten. You know, this is a source of food and so on and so forth. And then obviously there's always this argument like, well, the fact that you've done something for hundreds of years doesn't mean that you have to continue to do that, right? We were, you know, raping for thousands of years doesn't mean that we have to continue to do that. But then the interesting part of the argument is like, yeah, but if this is tradition, you should be doing that under oars, not using your boats, right? And then, but then my thinking is like, well, well, yeah, but... You know, traditionally they were doing using watercrafts that were available to them. So they they still do that. So it's it's you know it's curious to me that this is like this. This has to have some of um, uh, properties, let's say, of being ancient. Like, well, you need to use ancient gear. You need to use oar boats, and you need to use you know, um, and that makes it traditional and you know somehow when you're using modern you know when you're using modern bow when you're using modern boats does this mean that it's not traditional anymore it's
1: you know it's interesting curious of yeah. your view on this so that my my recollection of of the tribal hunt in the northwest is they did use traditional methods they actually approached with a, a paddle a, a canoe mm. out on the open ocean they would harpoon and then they actually used a modern piece which was Essentially, a high-powered rifle to deliver a fatal blow immediately, so the animal wasn't suffering. So there was this compromise. I think it's interesting about the pharaohs in that it's a very specific hunt where typically the pharaohs, I think, take pilot whales, and they took a, a very large super part of a certain type of dolphin this time.
0: Yeah, I don't even want. I don't even want to want to mix that particular one hunt because, it, like, even pharaohs right say, they like, actually, there was many things done wrong, and there was. There you were know, people in that
1: community who were like, no, 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 this is not the way we do it. Yes, right? and I, precisely. And I think I think that the answer is going to come from internally for those those types of hunts. Like I think um, I, the the hunt in the United States, there was, um, I think in California, they stopped hunting mountain lions with dogs. So you used to yes. like... Track and then you tree the lion and then you you shoot the lion The advantage of hunting with dogs for mountain lion is is mountain lions go. Oh, there's a dog I'm going to stay away from there, right? They they learn to associate dogs with being chased and so arguably That's a pretty good way to keep them out of Communities and keep them out of neighborhoods because they associate dogs with something else it will be interesting to see if statistically after the the, the the hunting pattern changed with dogs, whether we saw more pets disappear. Typically with mountain lions, you start seeing a problem when your cats and your dogs start disappearing. That's kind of a mm. a bit of a clue that you've got lions in the neighborhood and you need to have an awareness. Um, but it, the point that you make, which is do things need to be traditional, I I think there's some merit to saying... If it's, if it's a traditional practice, then let's maintain that because that's also often a way of self-regulating on the take. Um, and so true. you have um, limited permits that are out there. That's one way to do it, and that's one of the ways they, they work with the buffalo hunt uh, out in Montana. Um, and then you have here we have a lot of uh, deer hunting, and you, you draw tags for different areas. Um, and that tag's good for a year. You have specimen tags where you might be lucky enough to draw a sheep one year, and you've been waiting 20 years to get that tag. Um, But I I, I think that discussion, particularly around what is right and wrong on traditional take, in truth, isn't best answered by me. It's going to be best answered by the community that is advocating for that traditional harvest. And they should get to set... In large part, the way that they they do that hunt, because it shouldn't be me. Yeah, like it's no, I and mean,
0: that, that's 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 exactly the point that, that we again coming kind of repeating the theme of people in in Britain or in the U.S. you know feeling compelled to to tell some other people what they should do and what they shouldn't do.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of. It's kind of nutty to like talk to other countries about conservation and how you have to look after your marine stock of a certain type of fish when we've we've removed every fish and we've uh, we've man, destroyed that, the seabed. Man, that is an
0: argument that is an that is an, an argument that like actually that people from from
1: Ireland and UK they probably should just shut up because there's like nothing. <laughs> right, and in the same way, you look at the red deer population in Scotland,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which is this enormous, umpteen, tens of thousands of animals that has changed changed the ecology of Scotland. Like those herds have mowed it down, they've reduced tree cover, they've changed the vegetation type. They're, they're a, in many ways a plague, and they need to be reset so that, that, that Scottish highland... And alone on the coast, it could all come back. And that's what happened in Montana when the wolf got reintroduced to Yellowstone. There was this profound change in in the makeup of the herds. Like elk populations crashed. Coyote populations crashed. Riverbeds changed. You saw there's some debatable science around it, but there's no doubt that the Lamar Valley that I saw 20 years ago and the Lamar Valley I see now in Yellowstone are radically different. They have, yeah. there are more trees that are down in the creek bed. There are different areas of willow. There is a different feel. You don't see tens of, you know, hundreds and thousands of elk sort of sitting around in the Lamar River bottom. They're up and away, they're up in the trees. It's reintroduction and restabilization for what was there, the ancient Caledonian forest. It requires decisive action. So if you don't introduce a major predator, you need to cull. because because just planting trees with a bunch of wire around them isn't going to do it. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. But then, then, yeah, I guess the, the 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 whole problem hinges that also those deer are perceived by people who live there as they, you know, a resource that that they they have, and they like. Well, actually, I like that many deer because we we can have you
1: know hunting parties coming in and leaving money. Right. So you could have sustainable hunt as part of that. You can have these other things, but but I also think it's a it's a Scottish question. It's not an English, Welsh, or Irish question. It's a Scottish question, and I think uh, it, it when we look at these other places to try and fix, like and I just said, oh, you got to do a call. That's an opinion, but it isn't really bad because I'm not living there. Is we need to look to our own. So like right now in. Where I live in the United States, we're, we, we have a really major feral pig problem. It's a cross between a domesticated pig and a Russian boar. So we call them hogs. Mm-hmm. And they're moving up from Texas. They've just got into Canada and they're radically reworked the ecology. And they are pigs are clever. They're adaptable. They breed like crazy and they're incredibly destructive. But they're also tasty, right? Well, yeah, so we saw them out on the ranch and we saw them on the wildlife camera and we're like, okay, let's get a permit. And oh, you need to have a permit. Well, your depredation permit. It's like you could say there being a problem and you can just shoot, it's very, just like 10 bucks. Oh, okay. um, yeah. And you, uh, so you see that we, so I stalked this, this hog in open country just to check it out and see where the angle was going to be. Mm-hmm. And of course, they looked at me and they were like, oh, he's behaving differently. Like the dogs are behaving differently. We're all behaving. And like that, bam, they were gone. We didn't see them again. They just came back actually, but uh-huh. caught them on the camera the uh-huh. other day. like, but you
0: know, these are uh.
1: <laughs> highly intelligent, highly adaptive, and they're going to change our ecology. So we have to have a, a profound approach. And there's a lot of trapping and shooting that has to happen in order to remove them from the system and then build basically a resilient management pattern uh so that we don't have this as an ongoing challenge
0: yeah yeah for sure listen man it's it's there's been an absolutely fantastic conversation um before we wrap this thing in can you give our listeners and viewers a few fairly universal advice how to how to be safe in the outdoors how to think how to prepare, you know, how, what you would, what you would do like a, like a, you know, like a rule of thumb.
1: I, I think that, I think that A is have a plan, always have a plan and always tell somebody where you're going and when you think you'll be back. Cause that'll save a lot of search and rescues, right? Cause we know roughly where to look and we kind of know when you kind of things might've gone wrong. So do that. I think be adventurous, but be realistic. And it, Paul Petzold talked about, uh, bad experiences leading to good, good judgment. The idea you go out there, you have a total epic and you're like, I won't do that again. Um, I think, I think as a younger person, I'm really glad I, I, I had those adventures of a bad decision-making, but, but do it within a context of not getting killed. Like, don't,
0: yeah, you were lucky you. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Like. <laughs> On those, on those cliff jumps, don't do the 80-foot cliff jump before you've done the 20-foot cliff jump to make sure there isn't a boulder below the surface. Like, start to build your resume of experience on this trajectory. Don't start way up here. Start here. You know, have an apprenticeship. So I think being safe is making good decisions out there and going through what if, not to the point of paralyzing you from having adventure, but thinking about if something goes wrong, Have we got enough resources to get ourselves out of it? Because you talk about redundancy a lot in in anchors. When you're climbing, you say if that anchor fails that we're hanging on, there's another anchor over here. We have redundancy in the system. And the first line of safety is yourself. And the second line is actually yourself, right? It's the idea that if it goes wrong, can you get yourself out of the problem? So if you're gonna go next to water, Learn how to swim, you know? If you're going to go out in a boat, learn how to work an outboard motor beyond just taking the top off and rethreading the pool, right? Know to like where to twiddle stuff and where to dry stuff out. Be an apprentice that's to adventure, to, to not go so bold and so great for the Instagram moment that you haven't served your time learning your craft. And that's what I would say to people as a rule of thumb is don't be afraid to go slow because Instagram is is a momentary image capture device that sort of gives a false idea of what's happened. And actually, what's greater is memory. It's like to have this thing where you've drawn on all these experiences, they've stacked up, and the moment you get tested, you cash them out because you can get yourself out of that, ish- that problem. And so... invest in in apprenticeship invest in in having a mentor and shut up and listen like quite honestly the the saying less is you actually gain more is is being i benefited from amazing mentors when i started in the outdoors and whether it was sailing across the channel and having a captain who could deal with incredibly complex situations and, and break them down to let the crew do a good job and watch how this man worked with the crew, that was an amazing mentorship. I think my dad's use of humor, like my dad's humor is unbelievable. He can find a joke in everything. And as a manager, he must have been amazing because he, he would have as a you know, he would have opened doors because people were relaxed and they would listen and be engaged. So when you're finding mentorship, it should entertain and should keep you engrossed. It shouldn't be a hazing. And it shouldn't be a trial by fire. It should be. It should be comfortable. Like your mentor should make you comfortable in your knowledge, and that comf- that comf- that comfort translates into confidence, and that confidence becomes safety. Yeah, that's
0: a those are these are wise words, uh, Moose. Um, yeah, what's your view on these devices that, like a GPS device or nobody even watches now that are have like a. Um, Accident detection. Do you think these these oh. are these are good, or is it like a, just a gimmick and don't don't waste time on it?
1: So the first the first iteration, they were a complete. They were a complete pain because people were using them. We had somebody out. the The, the High Sierra is this sort of up and down. You know, I'm um, you know, well over ten thousand feet, and you're sort of going up to twelve thousand. You come down to eight, and there was a guy who had one of those devices that he could send messages out. And he got to a peak and he just said, I'm having a heart attack. You know, I'm like, I'm dying. And we're like, oh, God, so you're getting the helicopter geared up. And then the next message, he was at 8,000 feet. And he said, I'm not having a heart attack. I'm okay now. But we'd already launched. So he'd sort of come back. And then the next message later in the day was, I'm having another heart attack. And actually what he was experiencing was altitude, you know, like heightened, like Pounding hard because you've gone up and actually it's hard work. And so those first iteration I wasn't that impressed by I think now If they use wisely, they're fantastic. I think they have Real application particularly where you can message. I'm okay. I need assistance Hey, I need a pickup those ones. I really like because They're precise enough in their search pattern to like zoom in you can be really specific in your messaging I I think it's all down to the user. Um, so I like them. And we just – we had a very funny thing happen in Yosemite the last two weeks. A rescue dash hound – you know what a dash hound is, like a mm-hmm. sausage dog? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Got away from its owner, and it was wearing a little red jacket, and he was in Yosemite Valley, and he had one of those um, those tags that tells you where he is. And it's a rescue dog. And for two weeks, it was on the loose in Yosemite Valley, and nobody could catch it. For two and he weeks, put extraordinary amount of, they put extraordinary amount of uh, resources on the ground to try and capture this dog. That's name was Puma. It was named- <laughs> <laughs> and, of all the names, <laughs> and, and people were like, people were looking at it on their phone I and mean, being, "There's a reporter Puma over in Lower Housing," and they run over there. And of course, it's a, it's one of these little dash hounds, so it's really good at going under rocks and hiding. Mm-hmm. And it went on for weeks. It dodged bobcats, raccoons, mountain lions, vehicles. It it survived for two weeks with his little red jacket on. And they eventually caught it because he got stuck in the laundry over at the lodge. And he couldn't get out. <laughs> but, but I say this story because the, the adventure of Puma happened in real time with that little thing that was out there tracking. And so there is real application. Um, and there's... And I like that. I think technology doesn't have to be the thing that breaks us. It should complement and add to our experience. And, and that's on, on the sort of spot devices, location things. Ultimately, if they, avoid, if they avoid having to tell a mom that their child has died, mm-hmm. that's a good thing. Because the moment that you tell a mom that she has lost a child, there is an ungodly noise that comes out of her in a way that it's unforgettable. Like it's when parents lose a child, it's profound. When a mom loses her child, the, the emotional, the, the noise I have heard and I have experienced over the years is consistent in its horror. And so for all the inconvenience and for all the silliness with those things, If one mom doesn't have to get that message, then it's absolutely worth it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, let's let's hope, like, the less these accidents, the better. And um, once again, your your book, When Accidents Happen, Managing Crisis Communication as a Family Liaison Officer. But like I said, not only if you even don't... uh, envisage being family of the officer or even work in uh, in the accidents it's a it's an excellent book on the really on the psychology right there's, there's really yeah. you, you, you talk a lot about how communication work and communication is 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 super important so uh, folks uh, buy that book uh you you're not gonna regret it and most thank you so much for your time. thank you so much for this conversation it, it's been it's been really fantastic.
1: Tommy thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking to you last week and th- this has been great thank you for the opportunity and i look forward to maybe hosting you when you get over to america it'll be great to have you visit us and show you a bit of around town over here Cue
0: up on this i can tell you be great out.
1: thank you all right see you all right thanks buddy